winter. Hello and welcome to the eighth of these podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk to Rock Sandford of Gometra. Rock has owned Gometra since the late 80s. He has had a long and interesting career as both a farmer and a publisher, as well as working on the board for an inner-city affordable housing trust in London. His family history is both long and full of remarkable individuals. Having come from wealthy stock, his parents moved to the slums of Battersea not long after he was born. Both of his parents have had acclaim and critical success for their era-defining work. His mother, Nell Dunn, wrote both Up the Junction, which was inspired by their community in Battersea, and Poor Cow, amongst many other works. His father, Jeremy Sandford, wrote Cathy Come Home, and was a champion of the lives and rights of travelling people. I first met Rock when I was working as a local development officer for the Ulva Ferry area. I was greatly taken with his charm, sincerity and sense of fun. He is a frame of reference that I found very inspiring and had personal experience and knowledge of some of my literary idols. My colleague, Callie Fleming, whose ancestors actually hail from Gometra and I, were taken by boat to the island by the late, greatly missed Ian Munro. Rock makes mention of Ian straight away. Ian was a wonderful man who I greatly enjoyed getting to know. One of the many things Ian was renowned for was his homegrown rhubarb wine. Our meeting with Rock in the residence of Gometra was held in the island polytunnel, where we talked about housing and the specific needs of their community. This was a pretty serious meeting, and I was trying my best to be a grown-up and not to bother Rock for anecdotes about Bruce Chatwin and George Melly. As the meeting progressed, more and more rhubarb wine was consumed. I genuinely tried to decline the delicious beverage, but felt it would be insulting to do so, and so had quite a skinful. All in the name of work, you understand. Georgia, my wife, can recall a phone call I made from Gometra, which she still calls a cry for help. Later in the day, we had to make our way back to Alva Ferry to meet with the community there for a very serious meeting. I've never been so frightened in all my life. I was absolutely stoicious, and there was nothing I could do. My actor's training came into play, and I took on the role of a drunk man playing the part of a sober, serious man with... I hope a plum. Hopefully no one noticed. The project was a success in any case. Our conversation in this episode takes in all sorts of topics. We talk about the history of the ownership of Gometra in some depth, and Rock offers a perspective on lazy beds, those furrows that permeate our landscapes that I'd never thought of before. We cover some esoteric matters, family stories, the genetic makeup of notional populations, climate change, and a quite remarkable coincidence harking back to my conversation with Lucy Mackenzie about the Happy Valley murder that you can find about halfway through the episode. I spoke to Rock via FaceTime audio through my computer and into a sound recorder. The line occasionally makes odd squelching noises, but I think it's pretty clear, all things considered. I'll be back at the end to see a couple more things, give you a couple more links, and round off. Over to Rock in central London. Where are you this evening? I'm outside West End Central Police Station. Oh, right. Is this from the, the Resistance? It is, exactly. The Rebellion. 
I'm here to welcome the arrestees when they're let out. So if someone comes out, I might have to just stop while I deal with them and then come back to you, if that's okay. Fantastic. That is to that makes total sense. Don't worry about that at all. So, so I will just say I've got to go, and um, right. and then I'll ring you back. Okay, so um, thank you very much for your time. Can I ask you to introduce yourself for the, the listeners? Who, who are you? <laughs> well, it's not necessarily who I am, um, yes. but it's my name, which is Rock Sandford. Fantastic. Um, and, but I do sometimes think it'd be nice to go without a name at all. And yes. I, um, I suppose I'm on your podcast because 25 years ago, Ian Munro brought me to Gometra. And I think he decided that I should live there <laughs> and, and um, basically did, did all he could to, to make me feel at home and settled. And he was an amazing man. And he was. He was a remarkable man. Yeah. And my life is much, much richer for having known him. Indeed. And um, so I ended up living on Gometra. Fantastic. I came there to live full time, but I underestimated how difficult it would be to live without a school, reason, reasonable access to a school or a doctor yeah. or a ferry or reliable communications with the outside world. Because yeah. when I first went there, it was often basically no communication with the outside world sometimes. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's a bit dangerous. And I didn't really see it like that then at all, but I do yeah. see it like that now. Um, so... In, in the end, I, I started living part-time, and yes. I feel that's in a way, I've had many, many people come to live there, um, maybe about 40, Yes, and I've seen that people who do live there full-time yeah. tend to um, only last about two years, whereas the people who come and go will last much longer. Indeed. And how, um, how long were Ian's family on the island for? Um, Ian's family, I don't remember exactly which year they came. They were farming over. Um, Rhoda yeah. was breeding horses and helping Ian with his flock, very nice flock. Mm-hmm. And um, their, their tenure on Alva came to an end, and I was very pleased that they wanted to come to Gometra. That, that was sort of a great coup for me to get them. Yes. And um, both of them make an incredible contribution to the island. Indeed, yes. And if you don't mind me asking, how did you first come to meet Ian? I, I arrived, basically I was farming in Somerset, which is where I grew up, on Exmoor, which is very like Gometra. It's sort of, it's almost identical, strangely. It's, Exmoor yeah. goes down to the sea and it's got bracken and heather and sheep and so on. Anyway, I was farming sheep and my farm wasn't very big. I was a bit cramped in and restless and... I realized I could cash in the farm and get a much, much bigger farm in Scotland and actually more beautiful and, and lovely. Yes. So I, I kind of came and looked around various places and I was going to walk out to Gometra. I came across on the ferry with Donald and um, I was just about to walk up to Gometra. And I think Donald, quite rightly, was very keen to suss out who I was before yes. I would be allowed to settle in on Gometra. Definitely. And, and he insisted um, very forcibly that I should wait for Ian and Ian would give me a ride. Which, which uh, I was reluctant because I didn't know Ian. And I said, no, it's only five miles. I can walk up there. But, but he prevailed. So Ian arrived with a quad bike and yeah. I sat on the back and off we went. 
and across the causeway. And that's how I met him. How did you come to know of Gometra, first of all? It's a very, very remote Hebridean island. How on earth did you come to hear of Gometra? Um, I was looking, basically looking at various farms that were for sale in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And this one came up as one of the farms for sale. And I didn't, on the face of it, I didn't think it would suit me, but I thought I would just go and have a look just in case. But once I got there and sort of Ian worked his magic, I, I, I was done for, you know. I, yeah. As I like to say, I, people think I'm the possessor of Gometra, but it's actually the other way around. Having been in Gometra, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a magical island. There's something it, very, very different about Gometra. It is magical, and, and all of us who, who are involved with it feel the magic definitely what do you think the magic of gometra comes down to we when we were uh, when i came out to see you a number of years ago we went past different uh, hummocks uh, sheen as they're called in gaelic these kind of fairy mounds and fairy hills which kind of it plays in the mind a little bit obviously fairies is a, a stretch of the imagination but there's what is it about gometra that's magical it's a hard question to answer yes one knows it's magical one feels it the ghosts of the many, many people who have, have lived on Gometra and worked on Gometra are very present. Yes. And why that is, I don't know. It could be that we are off-grid. Mm-hmm. We don't have cars. We don't have roads. Um, it could be that, uh, as you're hinting, the, the, the Sheans are, are sort mm-hmm. of reservoirs of magic. Mm-hmm. But it is it is a definitely a, a very enchanted place. There's a play by Sue Glover called Bondagers, which was a success in Scotland in the uh, early 90s and got revived again a couple of years ago at the Lyceum. And in that, it's about indentured labourers working on farms in, I think, the uh, borders, I think, rather than Ayrshire, somewhere in Scotland uh, in the 17-1800s. And in that, they talk about the Lang Syne rigs, the the old rig system, the old rig patterns that are from before this time. And there's one of the characters who's particularly attuned to the the rigs. And while others kind of um, kind of just ignore her and think she's somewhat simple or somewhat special, she has this great connection to the land. And in some ways, she can see actions of the past there on the land. And it's I've always been struck by that. That comes back again and again in, in so many kind of uh, things of our, our culture, that sense of the past and the land. The past is very, very present on Gometra. And one sees it, one sees it in, the, in the, the sort of shrub cover, obviously, mm-hmm. because that is, that's not the, 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 the natural vegetation, which would have been woodland. Yes. But one sees it in the lazy beds, which, which are in every single bit of cultivable ground on Gometra, the, the remains yeah. of the lazy beds. And it, it's very moving and sad because those beds are still there that were dug for the last potato crop, in effect. Yes. So yes. They're, 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 that's the work of the people whose potatoes rotted and died. Yeah, I'd never and, thought of that before. And then all over the place there are... Um, bits of masonry, strange bits of masonry which one can tell are human basically human um, artefacts but one can't tell what they are and they're just everywhere so it's it's very interesting. So it's a landscape full of human significance but the actual human engagement with the objects is gone? There's been, there was I suppose there was a massive discontinuity 
at the time of the potato famine. And so perhaps the knowledge of what those objects were was still there then, but, but has been lost since. You mentioned the the deforestation of the island. As, do you have any idea of when the island was deforested from the old, massive old forests? I have a vague idea, but but it's not a very um, accurate one. Mm-hmm. And and what I know is that the Duke of Argyll, the fifth Duke of Argyll, mm-hmm. who was actually a, a great reforming landowner. I think people have different opinions, but he definitely tried to generate economic activity for the people living on his estate. Mm-hmm. And um, he was the, I think he was one of the founders of Tokomori, for instance. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. And he, his correspondence has survived. And there's a lot of letters. I mean, it's very apt for nowadays, but there's a lot of letters asking for his woods to be protected because people were cutting down the trees to, to make their, the roofs of their black houses. Right. And, and also, interestingly, he was very concerned about people burning too much peat. Really? Because the soil fertility was, was falling because basically the organic matter in the soil was being burnt, often to make whiskey. And it's <laughs> completely understandable that people needed... people. Life was so hard that they needed a high... Well, indeed, but they also sold it as well, as I've been finding out recently. They Did were, they? I didn't know that. Yeah, um, it was for export a lot of the time as well. Okay, well, <laughs> well, there were a, a, an amazing number of stills, uh, illicit stills, and that they were fueled by peat. So the Duke of Argyll in his letters, the fifth Duke, would be writing to his chamberlain saying, or his steward on Mull saying, tell them, tell the people of Gometra they may go to Laganolva for their peats or Oscomal <laughs> and not not to burn the peats on Gometra and tell yeah. them not to take the wood from the woods and I will send them wood and things like that. So he, he was he had an amazing eye for detail. Yeah. And I, I think people who know more than me might disagree, but I, I think on balance he was probably a force for the good. I'm happy to be corrected. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so... You talk there about his letters still being on record. You have presumably then the the archive of of Gometra's existence through correspondence and documents and... It's unfortunate because I don't seem to have much of an archive. What's Gometra's history? I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but it's... Loads, yeah, and as much as you want. (laughs) Okay, well, it's... I mean, I can summarise it quite quickly, which is that it belonged to the MacDougalls of... um, and then they backed the wrong side in the Wars of Independence, so it went to the McDonald's. Yeah. And the McDonald's gave it to the McLeans. Right. Um, when the McDonald's fell foul of the Scottish Crown and were dispossessed, the McLeans then became um, feudal vassals of the Scottish Crown, as it were. Yes. Um, the Campbells steadily accumulated. They, they, they bought up McLean debts. The, the McLeans were working for Queen Elizabeth of England. Right, um, and helping her subdue Ireland, and they were sta- whole, they were um, keeping a standing army, basically, yes. ready to go and subdue Ireland, yeah. on Queen Elizabeth's behalf, and that they they could only do that by borrowing money, and the Campbells bought the debts, basically the um, IOUs of the Macleans, and accumulated them all, and 
then went to the McLean's and said, you've got to pay this. And obviously the McLean's couldn't. Oh, my goodness. And the McLean's thought that they force would be on their side and they yeah. would be able to, um, you know, sort of hold the camels off. But they didn't realize that things were shifting so that law was becoming almost as important as force. And the Campbells had access to the courts in Edinburgh and they understood how to operate in, yes. in a legal context, which the McLean's didn't, basically. McLean's were relying on um, on force. The Tanisjuch system, maybe, as well, the older way of doing things. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah. And they didn't understand... I, I, people know much more about this than me, so I'm I, I'm very willing to be corrected, as I say, especially yeah, if I make any howlers. But they just didn't understand the, the the great shift from the rule of force to the rule of law, um, imperfect as the rule of law was in in Scotland at that time. That's phenomenal. That so there's Gometer right at the change in the nation. Okay, so, yes, exactly. So it went to the Maclean's. It was extremely important because Carnaberg, um the island off Gometra, the twin islands, yes. were relatively impregnable. They were very rarely captured, and they yes. commanded the seaways between um, basically the outer route around the outside of Mull. Yes. So it, in, in terms of geopolitics, it was incredibly important. Yeah. And uh, funny enough, I discovered that one of my ancestors was one of the few people to capture um, Carnaberg. <laughs> Goodness me, that's quite something. That's a, a heck of a steep approach to Carnaval. It, it is hard, yeah. yeah. So from the Maclean's, let me just think. Um, yes, so the, it went to the Campbells. Yep. When the great Duke died, which I think was 1798, mm -hmm. um, he had a couple of successors in quick succession. Who He was, he was very thorough and very... Um, he was just very involved in his his tenants and his estates, but his successors yeah. weren't so involved mm -hmm. and fell into financial difficulties, as many, many people do who try and operate economically in the Hebrides. Yes. And they had to sell some of their estates, and they sold Gometra to, he was called, I think, Alexander Boysdale. Okay. But I might have his first name wrong um, off the top uh -huh. of my head. And he was the... Basically, he was from the Clan Reynolds family of McDonald's, ah. and he had um, estates in the Outer Hebrides, and yes. he was the person who invented kelp burning, or, or really developed for it. Potash, so he, yeah. Yeah, so he was responsible for the massive increase in population in the Hebrides that followed on that very lucrative industrial, sort of semi-industrial activity. Yeah. And his son was called Colin, and Colin... Um, bought Ulva, I think I'm right in saying, mm -hmm. and then and basically he wanted to leave Boysdale to his older son from his first family, but he had an older son from his second family, mm -hmm. who he wanted to set up as an in an estate. So he bought Ulva, mm -hmm. and he also bought, I think he bought Ulva, not directly from the quarries, but there were a couple of Campbells in between. Right. Okay. And he also bought Gometra later um, from the Campbells and set up his son. It might have been his son who actually bought Gometra, but anyway, mm -hmm, Gometra mm -hmm. ended up belonging to Stafford MacDonald, mm -hmm. who was famous as a friend of Sir Walter Scott's and part of, again, a great shift in the Hebrides of the Hebrides being perceived as a sort of tourist destination yes, and yeah. an amenity area yeah. for people, especially, say, during the Napoleonic Wars when people couldn't go to France and people doing the Grand Tour would 
getting their coach and come to Scotland. And so the McDonald's had it. They, they in turn, went bust. Yes. Um, what do you think was the, what was the root of them going bust, do you think? Um, they, they increased the population of Ulva. Stephen McDonald boasted that he'd doubled the population of Ulva uh-huh. with, with their kelp shores, which, again, were very lucrative. Yeah. They had a lot of money coming in. They were importing a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone was, was, I think I'm right in saying, doing quite well. But again, I'm very willing to be corrected. Yeah. But, but the general drift one gets about Stephen McDonald and his family is that they, they were regarded as sort of benign, like another benign force. And I think at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the price of kelp went down. Yes. And so the basis of their prosperity fell. And Oliver went into the hands of trustees who were managing it who were sort of lawyers in Edinburgh, I think, who were managing it for, for Steffa. Ah, when and, it goes into lawyers, you get into that Dickensian problem of being devoured by lawyers. Well, true. And, and then they have legal duties to maximise return for the creditors and so on. So it's of all course. really unpleasant. Oh, yeah. And so they, no one wanted to buy Alva. It was on the market for, I think he went bust in 1817. Okay. And I think, this, these are off the top of my head, so they might be wrong, but I think it was about 1824 when they finally or 1825, but I might uh-huh. be wrong, when they finally found a buyer who was a Macquarie from Ulva, who, who actually bought it back. And Gometra they managed to hang on to. So Brilliant. Staffer died, and yeah. Gometra ended up belonging to his sister and mother. Mm-hmm. And they, they hung on really until the period of the Great Hunger. There were, there were successive famines, as you know. Yes. But the, the really great famine... I'm going to be caught out on the date now. I think it was 1847. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a terrible, terrible catastrophe. Yes. And the, you, you can read the letters of the time of the people who were trying to deal with the catastrophe. Yes. The catastrophe was, was made worse by a bit of legislation which historians seem to feel was, was just a, an additional disaster. And basically that legislation was, I think it was called the Poor Law, and it, meant oh, yeah, that yeah. any tenant or any landowner, if they had people living on their land, were responsible for, for feeding and clothing and housing them. Yes. If they couldn't do so themselves. And I think it was split 50-50 between the tenant and the landowner. But the problem with that is, is many tenants, it was a sort of cascade of, of bankruptcies in effect. Because the oh, tenants, the, the people living on the land in the Great Hunger obviously couldn't feed themselves. No. So it fell to the tenants to feed them and that then they would end up being unable to feed themselves. It fell to the landlords and then they would be unable to. And so many, many, many estates, the, not just the cotters, as they were called, who, who yes. didn't have a tenancy but were just working on the land, yeah. but the tenants themselves, who were the sort of small independent farmers with maybe some livestock of their own and the landlords themselves all went bust and all left and there was yeah. a complete change of complete discontinuity yeah. in Gometra's case I think many people went to Australia and funnily enough I'm in touch with descendants of theirs, theirs in Australia which is wonderful goodness me and they call they call the place in Australia that they went to Gometra which Fantastic. is very imaginative yeah. and, and heartwarming yeah. and um but basically the money, I think about half of them w- w- had their passage paid to Australia and they were very keen to go because they'd realised that the sort of 
Gaelic society was just collapsing. It was imploding. But the people who, the, the other half, and I, I haven't completely pieced this together from documentary evidence, but, but I think what happened is the McDonald's lost Gometra, and in the process, the, the people were asked to leave. But I haven't found Goodness me. documentaries of that, the, the, the Rainy people, so, so I don't know for sure. So was the island uh, uninhabited <coughs> for a while? Very quickly after that point, um, someone called Ruri Moore Gomestra, mm -hmm. uh, who was a Gaelic speaker of D Dervic origins, but he'd gone to Glasgow and made some money. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, I'm jumping the gun a bit because it was actually his grandfather and, and his grandfather's two brothers. I've, I've skipped two generations. That's all right. So his grandfather and their two brothers had made money, I think, as merchants in Glasgow, but yes. they, they originated from Dervic and they were McLean. They were McLean's. They bought Gometra. So Gometra left the McDonald's in, mm. in very tragic circumstances and it came in, back into the hands of the McLean's. And it's basically been, with very few exceptions, it's, it's gone between these various families yeah. all the way down, or people with connections to those families, all the way down to the present. And, <coughs> and your connection, is there a family connection from your ownership of the island as well? Well, I, I had a funny experience because I, I thought I'll make a complete fresh start and come and come and see if I can make a go of it in on Gometra, which was deserted when I came. There was no one there. Yeah. And I, I'm very interested in the past, as you can probably tell from what I've been yeah. talking about. So I collected stories about people and um, Ian told me about this very eccentric lady who had been the Laird of Gometra, who used to be driven down to the beach in a Rolls Royce every day oh, for goodness by sake. her chauffeur. My goodness. And would swim naked <clears throat> and then be driven back up. Brilliant. <laughs> and there was her sister who had been, um, who'd run away. There, there, was, uh, there was something called um, tricycle racing. Mm hmm. At about the turn of the sort of 19th to 20th century, uh -huh. and it was a sort of very modern thing. And there was an amazing moment when someone on a tricycle beat a horse for the first time. Oh, for goodness' sake! Wow. O over a furlong, and the person who beat the horse, who was called um, Charles Jarrett, mm -hmm. um, the sister of the lady in the Rolls Royce ran off with him, ah. uh, and it was a great scandal at the time. Uh, but he was obviously very, very dashing on on his tricycle. Yes, and. Um, she ran off with him and married him and so on. And then there were other people, like there was um, a very beautiful, elegant young man who had, he, he was engaged to one of the Midford girls from oh, yes. Kenneth. Yes. And he was, he was gay. Uh -huh. So he was involved in a great scandal of the time where um, there's a book called Bride's Head Revisited by oh, yes. Evelyn Moore. Yeah, I remember and that, it's yeah. based on this scandal, which is that someone called Lord Beecham, who was um, a great officer of state, I think it was the king's sword bearer, yes. and he was gay, and um, people didn't know, but it was illegal. Yes, yeah, and his tragically. his brother-in-law, yeah. who was the Duke of Westminster, found out and decided he would unmask him. So oh. the Duke of Westminster made a great fuss about it. And three Knights of the Garter, or four, I can't remember which, yeah. came to Lord Beecham, whose, whose nickname was Pussykins. <laughs> and he was in his garden doing his embroidery with, with my uncle, who was also 
my great uncle, yes. who was also keen on embroidery. Yeah. Um, and they said he had to leave Britain by midnight or he would be tried for sodomy. Oh, and so he left Britain by midnight and with one exception never came back oh, that's awful but anyway um, I was collecting all these stories and I'd, I'd been on Gometra for about six months and I went to see my grandmother who was quite ill and said um, she said what are you doing and I said I've come to Gometra hi there um, and she said oh Gometra lovely island hi there and I thought she was just being a tiny bit delirious because she was talking about the hind on the lawn as well, and there wasn't a hind that I could see. Right. So I didn't think anything more of it, and, and very sadly she died, and she was a lovely woman, yeah. but, but she died. But at her funeral, um, my great-uncle's boyfriend said, what are you doing? And I said, I've gone to live on this island called Gometra. Yeah. And he said, oh, your cousin's island. What? And, and so it turned out that the lady with the Rolls Royce. Yes. Well, the lady with the tricycle, tricyclist, yeah. had been my great grandfather's first wife, and the lady with the Rolls Royce had been his one of his best friends. Goodness. And her sister. Yes. And the the young man was my great uncle who who was involved in the scandal. Yes. Yeah. He, he and um, it had only been sold, Gometra, when I think when I was a baby or just before I was born. Right. But I hadn't known any of that, so it, it was quite strange. That's a, yeah, a weird bit of symmetry, really, isn't it? It's odd. It is. Yeah, and that, that side of my family were involved with the Maclean's of Toloisk. Yeah. So that, who, and, and the Maclean's of Toloisk have been there, basically. Toloisk has never been sold. Yes, yeah. So, so the lady with the Rolls-Royce, allegedly, but I don't think it was Rolls-Royce, uh -huh. was, was, the, was the wife of um, the then Laird of Toloisk. Moving slightly away from Gometra for a second, if that's okay, when I approached you about the podcast, you had a wonderful coincidence that comes from Lucy McKenzie's podcast. Lucy was talking about the Happy Valley uh, murder when I interviewed her, and she talked about her first cousin having been murdered uh, as part of a scandal of that. And you, you, ha you have a connection to this in some way as well, don't you? I do have a connection. Uh, um, I did, again, I didn't know what it was until, well, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, so not too recently. Yeah. But basically, when I was a child, I knew my grandfather's older brother had got involved in a scandal, but my grandfather never wanted to talk about it. <laughs> and there were lots of rumors as to what it might have been. Uh -huh. There seemed to be a lot of scandals in my family, but anyway. <laughs> and anyway, it turned out that when Joss Errol was murdered, yes. one of the suspects was Jock Dells Broughton. Yes. And Jock um, had an alibi, which was provided by my great-aunt, June. <laughs> However, the, the, the next day after the murder, yes. he was walking with my cousin, Juanita, who was a lovely woman, yes. who uh, saw that on the bonfire behind his house, he was burning some white plimsolls. And she thought this was really odd, because you normally gave your plimsolls to someone who really needed shoes, and you didn't burn them. And so she asked him why he was burning them. And he said, she told me, that you mustn't tell anyone, but I killed Joss. And goodness me, um, I'm burning the plimsolls so that they're not used in evidence against me. Later, a bit more emerged, which was that <laughs> my great uncle, John, yes. had a hotel in Kenya. He was part of the Happy Valley set, him and June, his wife. Yeah. And the Happy Valley set were the people, the, the sort of very dissolute kind of dodgy 
slightly dodgy people who who were sitting out the Second World War in Kenya. Ah, right. And so he was part of it. He owned this hotel called Eden Rock Hotel. Uh-huh. And a workshop attached to the hotel recently. People were fixing the roof. And they found a gun. Um, not that recently, actually, yeah. while he was still alive. Yes. Um, so they knew it had been his workshop. So they they contacted him. And he apparently arrived with a completely white face and took the gun and went out to the reef offshore and dropped it in the sea. And so it turns out that was the gun that killed poor Joss Errol. Oh, goodness me. And, um, and Jock Delfrotten had dropped it into a fountain at the hotel. And then oh. John, my great uncle, had gone to the fountain and retrieved it and hidden it in the, the roof of his workshop. Yeah. Yeah, and then he'd be discovered, so then he was panicking because he would have been an accessory. It's quite something. That's um, And that, the coincidence is that, you know, that, that Lucy just lives, what, a few miles from you, and there's so few people in between. It is odd, isn't it? Yeah. And it's really quite something. I'm speaking to you from Mull and you're in London at the moment. Can you say a little bit about where you are in London and why you're there and, and what it is that you're doing? Well, I'm outside West End Central Police Station, which is strange for me because I have been locked up there in the past. And so I do have a sense of deja vu about it. Yes. But I'm here because I'm involved with a movement called the Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And what that movement is saying is climate change is looking really bad. We're not really being told how bad. There's, there's a lot of censorship in the press. It's not really telling us the whole story. Mm-hmm. It, it's worse than the IPCC report alleges because there's political interference with that and extreme conservatism rather than the precautionary principle, which we should have, yes. which is don't do something unless you know it's going to be okay. Yeah. So the Extinction Rebellion is saying we really need much more action from all governments but in this case, it's the British government we're talking to, to take steps to really cut down greenhouse gas emissions yeah. and deal with this terrible problem, which, which is really serious. And yes, very much so. Has the high chance of killing the vast majority of us. Yeah. Yeah. If not everyone, it is a serious, serious problem. So what tends to happen is one goes on a march and maybe it's a report in the papers and then everyone forgets about it yeah. and change doesn't happen. And I've been an environmental campaigner for many, many years. And, and I've noticed that while I have had a lot of success in the past, I was getting less and less successful. And the mechanisms for absorbing the energy of the campaigning without allowing change to happen were getting better. And so I took a step back and started looking at empirical evidence for what causes change in terms of political structures. Yes. And I came across the work of this guy called Roger Hallam, is an academic who was looking at things like the suffragettes and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and the great movements where there's been some great evils in society and the existing structures couldn't adapt to change it and therefore some kind of external force had to be applied to the existing structures and he found that civil disobedience non-violent, it really must be non-violent civil disobedience was very very effective And so Extinction Rebellion is, has that idea that if we say, well, today Extinction Rebellion has been outside 
Downing Street. Yes. Spraying on the pavement things like tell us the truth. We need people to know the truth because people need to adapt and people are entitled to just know the reality. Yes. And the reality is being kept is being kept from all of us. And then I think 25 of those people, according to the BBC, have been arrested. Okay. Many of them are inside this police station right now. Okay. We don't know when they'll be let out, but I'm here to be here for them when they come out, make sure they're okay, make sure they've got money to get home. Yeah. Basically tell Extinction Rebellion that they're out and if they've got a court date, what that is and so on. It's very important to hear that. Thank you, Rock. That's great. Are we okay to talk very briefly about your own family as well? Because your, your grandparents and your parents are, are really, really interesting folk. Um, could you say a little bit about um, about who your mum and dad were and also your connection to the travelling community as well, if that's all right? Yes. John Carberry, who I mentioned, who was the guy who hit the gun. Yes. Um, and and I want to say that they, I think they did have a lot of sympathy for for Jock Delsbroughton. Yeah. Um but obviously it's not acceptable to, to shoot someone. No, So <laughs> not at all. <laughs> That's a pretty um, violent anyway, way of communicating rather than non-violent indeed, yeah. Yeah. Um, his mother was called Mary Carberry and she was my great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was a member of the Celtic Twilight Movement. Mm-hmm. So she was very interested in collecting folklore and... Um, she she spoke Gaelic and she collected a lot of Gaelic folklore, mm-hmm. and she used to travel around in a caravan called the Creeping Jenny because she had this beautiful plant called Creeping Jenny growing on the caravan as she travelled around, mm-hmm. and she travelled with I think she had two white oxen who yeah. would draw the caravan. Goodness me! And my great grandfather sleep in a tent beside the caravan and she slept in the caravan, and she was very famous at the time because she was the first person to install a bath in a caravan ah. so her caravan had a bath but anyway so she was a traveler she wasn't an ethnic traveler yes i think my dad sort of picked up a love of traveling from her he had a car that you could sleep in the back of so he was always traveling in the back of his car and then he had he, he was very good at making achintans as they're called in the romany language uh-huh. and with a bit of polythene and some sticks and so often he would take me off and we'd we'd live rough with in this tent made of polythene sticks and he became very close with with various traveler communities and became a bit of an advocate for travel rights yeah and and ran a newspaper called romano drum which was the traveler newspaper and and things like that he's also well known for um his work as a, a creative writer as well isn't he he was in a funny way, he, I'm not sure his heart was completely in writing. Really? He was a musician, really. Yeah. And he really filled Gometra with music yeah. uh, when he was alive. And in a very, very beautiful way. There was always music. Yeah. But he did write. And he was, he was very... He had one great, great success, which I think caused an emergency cabinet meeting of the British government and, and is still remembered. And, and that was a. He was always interested in the in the marginal people in society. Yes. And and this particular success was a television play. It was written for television, which had a sort of social aim. I think it was it was trying to make television into a medium which would which would create social change. Yeah. And so his television play was called Kathy Come Home, yes. and it was about a, a homeless family being broken up and having um really awful experiences at the hands of the of the 
British government. Yes. And it did, and it did, I think, generate a lot of, of pressure for change and improvement in, in provision for homeless people. There's a problem, there's, there's always a problem in terms of one can identify the problem and, and he identified it and portrayed it very, very expertly. Yes. And beautifully. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, very good film. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. A very successful young but, director directed it as well, I believe. Yes. Um, Ken Loach yes. directed it. <laughs> and it had um, Carol Whiting, who was, who was a wonderful actress, yeah. who killed herself sadly, but oh, she, was, no. she was lovely. I remember her. Mm. She, was, she was sort of one of the great hopes of, of the British sort of acting scene yeah, at the time yeah um so it was it was a good film i've been told i'm in it but i i haven't actually spotted myself right <laughs> and i think my brother was in it certainly my younger brother oh great but oh. but it's it is it's only stage one to identify the problem totally he did totally but but one also has to identify the solution and and make it a solution that is that kind of is consistent with behavioural economics and the way, you know, and, and the, the options available to, to a government and the political realities and so on. So, yeah. and that's, that's kind of the heart of it. I, I do feel we do need to focus on, on solutions and be rigorous about them as well as focusing on problems. Oh, totally. I think it's, it's, it's actually relatively easy to say, there's the problem, but it's, yeah, it's what's the solution? How do you fix things? How do you, you ugh, and it's... Yeah, that's really difficult. Your mum as well. Am I, is your mum still with us? Am I right in remembering? She's very much still with us. Fantastic. Can you say a little bit about your mum's life, if that's right, and, and her work as well? If well, possible? she she, in a way, was in the same business as my dad in terms of documenting, coming from both coming from quite privileged backgrounds. Yes. Um, but documenting the lives of less privileged people, and so she also had a great success at the time when I was born uh, they were quite privileged my parents since I was born in sort of quite privileged background but yes. very quickly they took me before I remember to live in what was then a slum in Battersea without in London without um, like I think we didn't have an inside toilet even but we didn't certainly didn't have an inside bath goodness me or any bath wow. um, because I still remember when we did actually get a bath put in and I still remember the occasion and everyone in the street coming to see and yeah. it was a very small bathroom, so it was quite a squash. But I just remember people coming and looking at this bath. Yeah. And so it, it was what they called slums. People were very poor. There were horses in the street. Um, there were rag and bone men. The street was cobbled. They're tiny little houses. Very, very sweet, but tiny. Yeah. And very happy community. Yeah. Very close, everyone. Those are my earliest memories. But when I was probably about four or five, probably the Greater London Authority, but I can't remember, or London County Council, I can't remember what it was then, mm -hmm. decided to do what they called slum clearance, which was to flatten the whole community of street after street oh, after goodness. street and build massive tower blocks. Yeah. So all our neighbours were sent to Bracknell in Berkshire, where there was a sort of new town built. Okay. And... These immense tower blocks were built on, on and, and new people were sort of put in them. And I remember before the tower blocks were built, going with my dad to see where we'd lived and just remembering this huge field of rubble, which yeah. went on and on. And my dad very cleverly found the location which had been our house because we'd had this transformer, this electrical transformer yeah. that had been sort of crushed up, but we could still see the bits of it. So we knew the location of our house. 
Goodness me. And was it at that period that your mum was writing as well? So she wrote, she, she continues to write, and yes. she always claims she's not writing, and then suddenly a book appears that she's written. Fantastic. But she, at that stage, she had a very great success, which was called Up the Junction. And it was just about living in that place and yeah. the lovely community and so on. Yeah. Ken Loach and Carol White and um, uh, Terence Stamp and so on yeah. were the, the sort of the group of actors and directors who tended to make their films. I remember going on set with when they were making a film of another of my mum's books with Carol White and Terence Stamp. Mm-hmm. And they had to, again, I was probably about seven or something, but they had to embrace under a waterfall, <laughs> quite a high waterfall. And I remember thinking they're so odd that they were going under this waterfall embracing and they were finding it quite hard and kept getting washed away and <laughs> it didn't really work. <laughs> and so when they came out, I was asking them, what, why are you doing that? Because I didn't really understand the concept of acting. And they both sat me down and explained that, you know, you're pretending to be someone else. And even when you're not acting, you have to live as if you're that person. Yeah. So that you really get into the mood for being that person when the camera is on you. So your first acting lesson was from them too, <laughs> underneath the waterfall. True. Yeah, that's yeah, true. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, there's so, so much we can talk about. I don't want to take too much more of your time up, so I really appreciate it. But I was wondering if it was possible to talk very briefly about some of the names on Gometra, some of the place names on Gometra. Is that, are, there any, are there any that stick out to you as being really, really, really significant? There are, yes. Um, possibly the most significant in a way is Art Skipnish. Mm-hmm. And um, that is on the censuses. When you look at the censuses, the, the, the population, and I can't really remember the figures off the top of my head, but the population was about 20 in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And it went up to, I think, a peak of 170, but don't rely on me, okay. in, in about the 1840s. Mm-hmm. And, um, but when you look at the censuses, there are three places named... Um, there is Balakloy, which we still have. Yep. There's Baliagrach, mm-hmm. and there's Artskipnish, and those two places haven't survived in the in the sort of place name record. They're not on the Ordnance Survey map. There didn't seem to be any evidence of where they were. And people would write to me, whose ancestors had lived on Gometra, and say, "Where is Artskipnish and where is um, Baliagrach?" Mm-hmm. And when I first came, um, Janan McFarlane who had lived on Gometra, was living on Ulva. Yes. And, and she was a lovely woman. Yeah. And she was very kind to me. She was really welcoming, and she told me a lot about Gometra. And amongst the things that I was very keen to record was the place names of Gometra, because I felt like if she should die, it would all be lost. Um, I actually found one or two other people who'd grown up on Gometra who also could tell me some place names. So Brilliant. in the end, it wasn't just her. Yeah. But, but she told me... Baliagrach. So she told me where Baliagrach was, mm-hmm. and that's where Gometra House is now. So it's it's the former name of of that end of Gometra. Right. Gometra was divided into three farms, and they were called Baliagrach, Balakloich, and Artskipnish. Um, I still didn't know where Artskipnish was, and she didn't, interestingly. Uh-huh. But I looked at an old estate map um, when the McDonalds of Staffer owned both Gometra and Ulva. Ulva. Yeah which happens very rarely. It's only been them and the Howards so yes, far. Yeah. Um, and only for brief periods. Yeah. But anyway, they, they had both. So they did an estate map in, I think, 1812. And sure enough, Art Skipnish was, was marked 
as sort of the northeast third of Gometra. All right. And, and there are currently there are, there are several black houses there, so one can tell that there was a, a township there. Ah. But okay. she told me many, many place names. I, I've got lots, which is really good. And I didn't know. Um, like in, in the sort of knowledge when I came from Ian and people like that, there was one Sheehan which was near Gometra House. Yeah. But Janan told me that there's another Sheehan at Balakroich. So, so both Baliagrach and Balakroich have their own Sheehan, which is where the little people live. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and that, that's very interesting. I don't know whether you know this, but there's a school of thought, which might have been discredited now, but I think it's very attractive, which is that <laughs> the legends of conical mounds with little people living in them yes. who, who hate iron, are terrified of iron, uh-huh. who steal babies, things like that. Yes, very fond of are, milk. And yes, exactly. And it's so pervasive across the, the Geltacht that I think a particular archaeologist suggested that it was a folk memory of the pre-Celtic inhabitants of Scotland and Ireland who had lived in conical huts, who didn't have iron, so they were terrified of knives. Goodness me. And they had coexisted with the, the incoming Celts who came from the Middle East in about, I think about 4000 BC, but I might be wrong. Goodness might me. be 2000 BC even. They were then more or less annihilated. Um, yes. But the, the women fared better than the men. So a lot of the women were incorporated into the Celtic population, but very few of the men were. That is fascinating. I, there's a book that might give us the answer to this, which is Stephen Mythen's book, To the Islands. I don't know if you know that one at all. There's. Um, I don't. I would love to read it. That sounds very interesting. It's really good. It's. I think it's in. Uh, is it Raven Press or something like that? I'll. I'll send you a link to it because it is. It's remarkable. And he goes into the, the history of very early peoples on Ulva, uh, Col, Tyree, Colonsay, and uh, here at Croig uh, in the north end of Mull. So there might be something in there. I'll have a look and see what I can find. For oh, you. interesting. Oh, I would love to know if so. Yeah. My um, one of my old tutors at college, a gentleman who I, I lament the loss of. Of all the time, a gentleman called Bill Finlay, who was a great translator of the work of Michel Tremblay, the French playwright, was very keen on Scottish identity. And he had an idea that he'd come across from somewhere that uh, the small, dark-haired Scots uh, people we have, particularly the women, is a genetic element of the Picts. That is possibly the Pictish gene that's come through. It gives us the smaller, kind of not heavier set, but sort of small, strong, dark-haired people. And that that was really lovely. <laughs> was really... It is lovely. Yeah. And I'm sure that there is a lot to be discovered. Oh, um, yeah. There is there there is an interesting paper about genetic archaeology, which is a very interesting subject. Yeah. There's so much that's interesting. For instance, I don't know if you know this, but they've tested five of the sort of leading families who trace their descent from Somerled. Yeah. Um, and they found they all are Norse, not Celts. Goodness me, really? So that he was a Norse. Well, he person. was he was a half Norse, half yeah. Scottish. He was, yeah. He's presented as as um, Celtic, but he, he was actually Norse. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Summer Wanderer. His name means Summer Wanderer. My family's actually yeah. descended from him on the Collins really? side. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, yeah. We um, come from Colkitto, which was one of Summerled's lot. So yeah, I. Ah, hey, Rock. Oh, I can hear that's that sending positive there um, for your it's, rock. It's okay, Alistair. It's just some fellow rebels who've come. So. <laughs> Against the empire. Fantastic. Um, so, yes, exactly. No, there was a paper recently that it was looking at the genetic differences of people in the British Isles. Yes. And it had some very interesting conclusions, yeah. which is, for instance, that the Catholic and Protestant 
population of Northern Ireland. Yes. It was very hard to distinguish them genetically. They're basically the same, the same stock. Uh-huh. And so on. And, and there, there was very little... The, the English were Celts. Yes. With, with a, with, and, and the English, the Scots, the Irish, all were Celts with a bit of Anglo-Saxon in. And the only really different population were the Welsh, which is very interesting. Ah, the original Britons. Yeah. yeah. So the Welsh had managed to retain their integrity. <laughs> and, and, and everyone else had sort of mixed with, with other... Wonderful other mongrels, groups. yeah. Yeah. That's quite something. Well, Rock, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Thank, thank you so much. Um, I can tell there's, there is so much more we could talk about, and I'd love to come out to Gometra and see you. I'm Good. Wonder- it'd be lovely to, to, to have a session on Gometra. Oh, it'd be right. fantastic. Yeah. And I'd love to talk to you about your plans for the future of Gometra as well. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I'd, and I'd also love to talk about our flock, which is very important. Um, yes, of course. And, and Rhoda and young Rhoda. Oh, it'd be brilliant to hear more about Rhoda and young Rhoda as well, and also to yeah, talk to them as well. Maybe they can speak for themselves, actually. I think so. so maybe it's not for me to speak to them. They're pretty, they're pretty good at that, yeah, so that would be fantastic. And we, we have a new family, which we're very um, excited about, who's moved in recently. Oh, that's so, great. So, yeah. That's really fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Rock. I really, really appreciate this. And, uh, yeah, I wish you all the very best with your civil disobedience and uh, hopefully see you at some point in the very near future. Good. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time, Rock. I really appreciate it. I look forward to catching up with you and hopefully the residents of Gometra on the island in the near future. You can find links to the topics covered in our conversation on the website at www.whatwedointhewinter.com. The Gometra website, www.gometra.org, is filled with a very detailed history of the island and lots of information about life there. The coincidence that Rock's family were connected to the murder of Lucy's cousin in Kenya is quite something. There are very few people in the four and a half miles as the crow flies between Baligaun, where Lucy lives, and Gometra across Loch Atua. Rock's comments on the lazy beds being the evidence of the last crops that failed, which formed part of the story of why people had to leave the land and seek security elsewhere and in the new world, really gave me a jolt. It's a sad history scratched into our land. There are many good books on this and other matters, not least of which is Andy Whiteman's The Poor Had No Lawyers, which, like The Shining, I could only read in daylight, lest it disrupt my sleep, and James Hunter's books, amongst which the recent reprint of The Making of the Crofting Community is well worth investigating. In the last day or so, I've come across a really interesting archive that, if you like this podcast, you may also be interested to investigate further. It's DASC, Dachy Erson Storis na Gaelic, the digital archive of Scottish Gaelic. Based in Glasgow Uni, you can find them on dasg.ac.uk or on Twitter at dasg underscore glashu, spelt G-L-A-S-C-H-U, dask underscore glashu. I'm really looking forward to delving into the resources when I get a chance. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm looking to fundraise through donations. So, if you feel like it, and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even a bottle of Gaviscon, wherever you may be, through the website. You'll see a donate tab there where you can donate if you so wished. But don't worry if you can't or don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened than not. 
If you wanted to leave a rating or a review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast, please feel free. And on that note, thank you to Emma for your donation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. As ever, the webpage, www.whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need for this episode. And we can be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Morning, thang. Shenu.